Okay, Jonah chapter 4. Here we are. I want to invite you to find Jonah chapter 4. We're finishing our study in the book of Jonah today. Uh, Just a a heads up on where we're headed over the next few weeks in terms of uh, the ministry of the word. Over the next five weeks, we'll have the opportunity to hear from several guests uh, in the pulpit. I'll be here a couple of those weeks uh, preaching. We'll also have some some guests that are uh, bringing the word. And then once we get to the last Sunday of November, which is also the first Sunday of Advent, we are going to begin a new series in the Gospel of Luke. So that's um, coming up once we get past uh, Thanksgiving. Today, we're finishing our study in the book of Jonah. So we've been with Jonah um, in the boat, and we were with him in the fish, and then we were with him in the city last Sunday, and finally today, we're going to sit with him in this booth that he's constructed outside the city. In the boat, in the fish, in the city, in the booth. That's where we are today. Jonah chapter 4 is a conversation between Jonah and God on the subject of missions. And that's the main plot line of the book of Jonah, isn't it? Um, Very simply stated, God sends Jonah on a mission. He's given a mission at the beginning, and eventually that mission is accomplished. It's a story about missions. And now at the, at the end of it, after the mission is accomplished, now they're going to talk about it. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you too have been sent, sent on a mission to people, just as the Father sent the Son, on a mission to people, so also has the Son sent you, disciple of Jesus, on a mission to people. It's a mission for the purpose of giving a life-giving message to people that need to hear it, a message that we call the gospel. Now, in, it represented in this room, we have among us people who are career missionaries who have spent their whole lives doing this very thing. This is their thing. And we also have represented in this room people that have never spoken a word about Jesus to another soul. We've got one end of the spectrum, we've got the other end, and then a lot of people somewhere on that continuum. Wherever you are on that continuum, whether you make your living in missions or whether you have never even uttered one single word on behalf of Jesus to someone else, we all have something to learn from this conversation between God and Jonah about missions. We're going to learn what missions is not, what missions is, and where we go from here as we wrap up our study, okay? Very simple outline. What missions is not, what missions is, and where we go from here. 
I couldn't be more excited to read the text of Jonah 4. What an account. Let's stand and read it in honor of God and his word. If you don't have a copy of the word, it'll be displayed um, up front for you. Jonah 4. Remember that all of Nineveh has repented and they've been spared. Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Father, we place ourselves willingly under the searching ministry of the word. The word which has the power to humble and crush and change. And we see these questions that you squared up and sent into the heart of Jonah. And we pray that the the same impact would be brought to bear on our hearts today. Let us just humbly sit and be questioned and be open uh, to you uh, with no pretense, just desiring that Jesus be honored in our lives and that your purpose for our life be achieved in the mission on which you have sent us. So we pray for your help in all these things. Uh, I pray that everyone listening um, 
would not only feel the impact of um, confrontation, but that they would also have a lot of joy in hearing these things, that you would increase our enjoyment of who you are in your word. And I I pray you'd fill me with joy um, as I have the privilege of looking into these things with my brothers and sisters. And uh, let it not just be an exercise, but Father, oh, changes for our own good. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Please be seated. The first thing that we want to take note of is what missions is not. Um, Here's what missions is not. Missions is not a heartless duty done by religious people. How do you feel when you hear the word missions? Well, here's what it's not. It's not a heartless duty done by religious people. In verses one through four, we see that the mission can be completed without any heart engagement. As a matter of fact, we see something shocking here. We see in this little section of scripture with the end of Jonah 3 and the beginning of Jonah 4, we see that you can excel at getting ministry results while looking nothing like God and even being opposed to God's purposes. You can look nothing like God and even be opposed to his purposes in the world and achieve unbelievable results in ministry. The whole city was saved because of Jonah's ministry. His words actually had their desired effect. He went and everyone believed what he said. And there was repentance. In other words, it worked. That's called effective ministry. That's the kind of thing that you put in your prayer letter and send to all your supporters and say, look at what happened. Look at what God is doing through my ministry. Like you could not have been more successful than Jonah was. He got wonderful results, but he is angry about it. He is displeased, exceedingly displeased. And so in chapter 4, we find out that while Jonah's mission is over, God's mission is not over. Remember, Jonah is the work project. He, now he's working on Jonah's heart, and we pray he's working on our hearts too regarding how we think about ourselves and how we think about God and about God's missional work in the world. Outwardly, we can look like we're doing all the right things. We can look like we're achieving wonderful things in Eden Prairie, in the Twin Cities. We can even get great results, okay? Take this to heart. This is scary. We can have great results, but look very unlike God and even be opposed to God. How dangerous and how sad. 
There's a really, really, really impressive church on the north side of Dallas. It's, um, it's in a great area that everybody would love to live in. It's in a very wealthy part of Dallas. It's, it's right by Southern Methodist University. Wonderful um, Bible teaching. They've got some of the best Bible teachers you could ask for there. Their budget is in the millions. It's the kind of place you go into and say, ah, this, this facility is worthy of the worship of God. It's so beautiful. Outwardly, they have everything. But there is a, a refugee settlement five miles east of there, and they can't get anybody to go there. And it's not just that, but when refugees have somehow made their way through their doors, come to a Sunday service, like cross that huge cultural and economic divide to come into their building, they cannot get people to actually engage them in meaningful relationship. Usually they sit by them themselves. And they would have every reason to believe that God is pleased with their teaching and their giving and their worship. And week by week they come and God, aren't you pleased? And look at all the money that we have and look at this beautiful building and how we're teaching. And yet, what if their hearts don't reflect the heart of God to go and minister in word and deed to people that need it? Now, they're an easy target to pick on because they're big. And the contrast is so great between what they have and what their ministry could be. But that problem is not limited to um, big churches. It's not limited to any particular geographic location. It's everywhere, more or less, wherever the people of God gather. And God is not willing to let this incongruence remain between Himself between who he is and who his people are. See, that's an incongruence, isn't it? And God's not willing that that should remain in Jonah's heart. That's why he's working on him. That's why chapter four is here. And he's not willing that, it, that incongruence remain in us between who he is and who we are. That's why we're giving attention to this. That's why we're here in Jonah four. So we have this discussion between God and Jonah and we're just gonna eavesdrop. We're gonna listen in knowing that it's here for our benefit and knowing that we can share his problem. So we see in verses one through four that there's indicators of this problem in Jonah's heart. He's angry. Now in verses five through 11, we see um, what God's strategy is gonna be in dealing with this problem. This lack of compassion for people that's such a striking difference between Jonah and God. We figure out, okay, how's God gonna manage this issue? What's his strategy gonna be in dealing with this human heart that's in front of him? So if you see this in yourself, if you see these same problems, and boy, I see it in myself, lack of compassion for people in danger of the wrath of God, lack of caring If we feel 
our own need for God to do a new work in our heart in this area. Just notice what God's strategy is in dealing with Jonah. And let God deal likewise with you. May he deal likewise with us. How will God go about confronting us? What's his strategy? Well, notice what his strategy with Jonah is not. As God begins to engage Jonah in conversation, his strategy is not, hey, don't you remember all of these incredible mercies that I've shown you? Don't you remember how I saved you from the storm, I protected your life in the the ocean. I protected your life in the city as you were preaching. You're a, a, a covenant member of the community of God, the nation of Israel. I called you to be my prophet. What's wrong with you? Aren't you thankful for all these things that I have done for you? Now, I'm sure that that would have been my strategy if I were dealing with Jonah at this point. I would have just piled on the guilt, said, why are you not being thankful? Remember this and this and this and this. That would make sense to me, but that's not what God does. And I think there's a a lesson there for us, especially for people in church leadership and especially talking about missions, that the way not to do it, if we want to encourage people toward missions and getting involved, the way not to do it is just to heap guilt on people and say, what's wrong with you? Like, don't you understand what God has done for you? Why are you not more active? What's, what are you doing? What's taking up all of your time? Why don't you share with more people? Don't you know that they're dying out there? You're bad. You're not thankful. Now get out there and talk about Jesus. We're just noticing that's not what God does. What does he do? Well, if I, were to, if I took what God presents him with and just summarized it, this is what I would say. God heightens Jonah's awareness of the gap between who Jonah is and who God is. He heightens Jonah's awareness of the gap between who he is and who God is. He says, in effect, okay, let's work a little harder to really understand the difference between you and me. And the main teaching instrument is this plant that we find out about in verse 6. It was probably a castor oil plant. What do we learn from the lesson of the castor oil plant? Well, you learn who man is and who God is. Who is man shown to be here in this little object lesson with the castor oil plant? Man is shown to be the one who is unable to grieve the potential loss of 120,000 fellow humans. But man is able to grieve over the loss of a form of plant life that has no soul. 
something that served his interest for a few hours and came up in a night and perished in a night. Now that a man can grieve for. What will make a man rejoice? What makes us happy? What do we learn from the lesson of the castor oil plant about what will make a a man happy or a woman? Well, shade. Boy, that sure rings true. I love shade. I'm so happy to find shade. Shade makes me rejoice. And we learn in verse 6 that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Yes, amen to that. Jonah rejoices in the shade that the plant provides, but he cannot rejoice that the Ninevites were all saved. No, there's no rejoicing in that. He hates that. He is exceedingly glad in the shade offered by the plant. That's who we are. That's who mankind is. That's what makes us rejoice. All these things centered on our own comfort. We're shown to be ridiculous here. Really, really ridiculous. Rejoicing and grieving over things with no soul. And not caring at all about many souls. Now, who, on the other hand, is God? Do you remember the parables of rejoicing in Luke 15? That's just one of the ways to refer to them. We could call it the parables of the things that are lost. We could also say the parable, the parables of rejoicing. Things that are lost are found in the very first one. It's a sheep. Right? Remember, there's a sheep that's lost, and then it's found. And so the person that finds the sheep calls a party, invites their neighbors, and they rejoice because the sheep is found. And then in the next little parable, it's a coin. There's a coin that's been lost. And then it's found, and there's much rejoicing. But then there's the son. There's this son that's lost. And will a man rejoice over the finding, not of a sheep or a coin, but can man rejoice over the the finding of another human soul. No. No, he cannot. And Jonah could not. But God does. He's the father in the parable of the prodigal son who rejoices when the lost son is found. That pictures who God is. That's what he rejoices in. All these things show us the difference between who we are and who God is. Okay, so there's a gap. Do you see that gap within yourself? I I see it in myself very clearly. It bothers me that I'm not a more compassionate person. It bothers me that I care more about things that affect me much more than I care about other people. I see that in myself. God's lesson hits home. I do care about lots of silly things. And here is our great God who's truly compassionate. So the question here at this point is, what do we do about this gap? 
between who we know we are and who our God is. What do we do? Well, let's remember, any time we're talking in terms of theology, when we, re, when we get to that point where we recognize that there is a gap between who we are and who God is, the solution is always Jesus. He, that's the reason for which he came, because there is a gap between who God is and who we are. The solution is always Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus and the difference that he makes in missions. Because the book of Jonah, like the whole Old Testament, points forward to Jesus. And the book ends with a question. It's a question that hangs in the air unanswered until Jesus comes about 750 years later and shows us what it really looks like to be a missionary. We're going to begin talking about Jesus. We're just noting in the first point that missions is not a heartless duty done by religious people. If that's what missions is not, then what is it? Three things. First of all, missions is a recognition that the perfect missionary has already come. Recognize first, as you think about the whole subject of missions, what is it? It's, first of all, a recognition that the perfect missionary has already come. Jesus Christ, who left a comfortable, safe place, a place of honor and a place of glory, to go to a dirty place, There's no place that we can go on this planet and no culture shock that we could experience. There's no darkness and no evil that will even come close to comparing the difference between the environment that the Son of God left and the one that he came to. In the world of global missions, they often talk about cross-cultural missions. That's, that just means when a missionary or a person from one culture engages someone from a different culture with the gospel. That's called cross-cultural missions. Well, Jesus crossed the creator-creation divide. He didn't just cross a cultural divide. He crossed the creator and creature divide. To come bring the good news to us, the message of salvation. He came on a mission from the Father to save people. And here is what makes Jesus different from Jonah and from us. He could share the Father's compassion for the evil city. We read in Luke 19, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. We read that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And I've got to say that this passage is, when someone asks the question, show me the texts in the New Testament that um, show the divinity of Jesus. Take me to those passages where I can see 
his divine nature come through. This one's never mentioned. No one ever mentions Luke 19. I think Luke 19 is an amazing proof of the divinity of Jesus. I think it's overwhelming. Jonah sits outside the city in anger and bitterness because he wants the people to die. And Jesus had every reason to desire the destruction of Jerusalem. They were in the process of rejecting him and killing him. And he weeps over their peril and the judgment that's coming upon them. Who does that? Only God does that. Jesus could weep over the pending and deserved judgment of his fellow man. Recognize that the perfect missionary has already come, the one who perfectly reflected the heart of the Father. And his name is Jesus. Now, here's the second thing. Talking about what missions is. Missions is a recognition that the perfect missionary has already come in the person of Jesus. And that the perfect missionary has already come and died for me. Missions is a recognition that the perfect missionary has already come And he died for me. See, it's not just that Jesus shared the Father's heart of compassion. It's that after preaching to people and having them not respond with repentance, Jesus went outside the city and offered his life in their place. Jonah went outside the city to build a booth and wait for the destruction of people. Jesus went outside of the city to die in the place of people who deserved destruction. Behold the difference between God and man. I said two weeks ago that we would come back to this question of why doesn't God show mercy to more people? We talked about how when God reveals his plan for mercy, when God opens up his plan to humanity and says, this is my plan for mercy, uh, people don't like it. In Jonah's case, he didn't like it because He felt like God's mercy was too broad. He didn't want it to include so many people. Most of the people you'd meet with today would not like God's plan for mercy because they feel like it's too narrow, that too few people are included. And I mentioned a conversation that I had with one of my sisters, how she came home and we were talking at the table And she was just sharing with me how she was um, very troubled by um, the perishing adherence of other religions. 
in pondering the question, how could Jesus really be the only way to God? Doesn't that reveal an, an extreme and unseemly narrowness in the mercy of God? And I said that we would say more about that question, so let's do that now, and let's begin here. Let's begin with the recognition that it's a really good thing to be burdened by the fact that people perish apart from the mercy of God. That's a really, that's a really good sign to be troubled by the fact that there are people dying out there apart from the mercy of God. That's a really good thing. Like Jonah, that's a place where he couldn't get. So the fact that you feel that in your heart is, is really good, as long as it does not distort what God has already revealed about himself in the Scriptures. What am I talking about? Well, specifically, a passage that we studied a few months ago together, Exodus 33. When God grants his greatest self-disclosure in the Old Testament, when he reveals his glory to Moses, he tells him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's what God reveals about himself. That's what must not be overrun by feelings and emotion. That this is who God is, that he owns the right over his creation to show mercy to whom he will. And not only does he own that right, but according to these verses in Exodus 33, the exercise of that right is integral to his glory. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. That was Moses' request, show me your glory. And then God reveals himself And a major part of that revelation is his own sovereignty in grace and mercy. His right to decide who receives mercy. And let me just say, my natural response at this point, as when we get to this point in the conversation about the mercy of God, my natural response at this point is, okay, at this point, Matt, you need to begin defending God somehow. You've got to say something to soften these statements which don't seem democratic at all, doesn't seem fair at all. You may want to say something at this point like, maybe this is not true, Maybe this text doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Maybe there is a way for a person to decide if God will show them mercy or not, rather than it being entirely up to God. 
The God who says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And that's a statement that the Apostle Paul repeats in Romans 9. I'm just telling you that my natural response is that these statements need to be defended somehow in order to make them palatable for people and for people to approve of this God. That's my natural response, but I want to let you know that my considered response when I read those verses, my considered response is not and need not be to try and defend God as if God needed to be defended. And the reason for that is very simple. The reason for that is this, that God has already provided his own defense of himself. Namely, that the God who said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, did not have mercy on himself. The God who said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, did not show mercy to himself. So that he could show mercy to us. God will arise and defend his own name. And his defense is the cross of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. The cross where he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. My response is not to defend God, but to worship God through Jesus Christ, the son crucified for sinners. Let me tell you something we might think that we would show mercy to more people if we were God. We might have that thought in, her, in, in our mind. If I were God, I would show mercy to more people than God does. Jonah 4 is a rebuke to that notion. If, if I were God... If Matt Brandt were God, I would show mercy to exactly zero of my enemies. And I would show mercy to my son. That's what I would do if I were God. That's what a man will do if you give him or give her sovereign control. No mercy towards enemies. And boy, if we'll do anything with our power, we will save our children. God's not like us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is on the throne, and he is not like us. He allowed Abraham to spare his own son, Isaac, but he did not show that same mercy toward himself. We are the ones who need to be defended. And there is no defense for being upset that a plant has died. 
and having no concern for 120,000 people. There's no defense for that. Let God be true and every person be a liar. Well, missions is a recognition that the perfect missionary has already come and died for us. And finally, it's a chance to be like him. Very simply, that's what missions is, a recognition that this perfect missionary Jesus has already come. He has already died for us, and it's a chance to be like him. You'll, many of you, probably all of you, will know the name Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, who died in 1951, the Irish missionary who poured out her life rescuing girls from temple prostitution in India. Someone wrote a letter. Um, a younger gal wrote a letter to Amy Carmichael while she was in the field and said, what's missionary life like? And her very famous answer, Amy Carmichael wrote back, missionary life is a chance to die. And there's a book by that name, A Chance to Die. Viewed from the wrong perspective, missions is a dreary duty to be carried out because we're supposed to do it. Heartless, human. Viewed from the proper perspective, missions is a gracious opportunity to know and be like the one that came to rescue you. Which means that it's a kind of death. That's what Paul count it as the highest prize. I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Missions is very simply the church's opportunity to look like Jesus by gladly laying down lesser treasures and human priorities to be a rescuer of the lost and, if necessary, dying for them so that they might know the mercy of God. So it's not a heartless duty done by the religious, but a willing death by disciples who are eager to know their Savior. Now, where do we go from here? Would you look back with me just one more time at verses 2 and 3? Of Jonah 4. I'd like us just to take these words as our last expression of worship to God. I'm going to encourage us to take the words of verses 2 and 3, what Jonah meant for complaint, and we can offer them to God in a different way. We can offer these words to God as an expression of worship, not a complaint, but as an expression of of worship, We can say this to God, having seen his mercy in Jesus. We can say to God, middle of verse 2, For I knew, or I know, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life. We can say that in worship, not in despair, but in worship, not in bitter complaint, but in adoration of worship. We can say to God, because I know who you are, now, therefore, please take my life, for it is better for me to die, that is, die to self, 
than to live. That's the response that God is after in the book of Jonah. The response from me and from you. Lord, would you please take my life and do whatever you want with it? I repent of my bad attitude. I repent of my lack of compassion for people. Thank you that the perfect missionary has already come and died for me. This is very simply a chance to go and be like him. Would you take my life from me for it's better, it's better for me to die to self for Jesus' sake than to live. hope I can rise to the point of being honest in that prayer. Well, our theme has been the mercy of God. And the question that we leave this study with, just want to seed this question in your mind as the very last thing. How could God's mercy be wide enough for me but not wide enough for his own son. The mercy of God. How could God's mercy be wide enough for me, but not wide enough for his own son? And we will ponder that question for all of eternity and never reach the end of it. That's who God is. That's why we worship him. That's why missions exist for the glory of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who was slain and who by his blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And worthy is his name. Amen. How good to stand before you, Father, and and just say corporately, you can do more with our lives than we ever could. And it is way better for us to die to ourselves than to live unto ourselves. I call to mind, Father, that D.L. Moody said one time that the world has yet to see what God will do with a person who is fully consecrated to God. And I, I just ask that from within this room, you would raise up not one, but many people who would just say, God, I know who you are, and from what I've seen of you, my whole life belongs to you. It's all open before you. Do with it what you will, for it is better for me to die than to live. How we thank you um, for this man, Jonah. The lessons he learned, um, what he had to teach us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.